Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1130. Recorded Friday, April 10th, 2015. Hey, 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 it's Carl and Richard. It's another Geek Out. How you doing, buddy? I am well. I am, you know, doing the thing with the stuff. But, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to do this show. This is a fun one. This is a fun one. And uh, I love the fact in these shows that we get to go back and revisit some of these old topics. You know, it's not, it, this one is about Moore's Law. But we, you know, because we do a lot of these shows, things come up. And yeah. we have to go back. Sometimes. Yeah, it's an interesting call as to when to revisit, like, automated driving. Because there's been a lot of progress since we talked about it. It really has. You know, almost two years ago. Right. So, of course, uh, we'd like to hear from you. If you uh, have any questions or suggestions for stuff, you can tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, that's it, man. And we keep all the notes. Yeah. Many, many notes. Well, today for Better Know Framework, I have something of a callback to our solar show, but not exactly. It's a solar product. So roll the crazy music and I'll tell you about it. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, have you heard about the solar road tiles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Solar that's, roadways. And that's why you went, oh, yeah. All right, because this isn't just, this is, a, it's a story of, well, that's neat. Oh, but yeah, there's some problems. But go to tinyurl.com slash solar road tiles. And uh, it's an article from Scientific American called Hard Road Ahead for Solar Freaking Roadways. Nice. Yeah. So basically, this couple of uh, engineers have put together this prototype of uh, a panel equivalent of a 3.6 kilowatt solar array and these these uh solar tiles that go on road they're 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 saying hey you know we should make all the roads out of these things right they're six-sided and they fit together they have leds that like light up when you walk over them um there's a lot of cool technology in them and you know that's kind of the problem as well so the challenges that this article brings up are real challenges. By the way, the video is a lot of fun, and you should watch the video. And yeah. that, that gives you the, gee, isn't the world great uh, view of it. But yeah. the first challenge, of course, what happens when it's night or clouds or, you know, when it's not generating electricity. We covered this in the solar show. Yep. Is that you need a storage mechanism. Yes. Or something to – you got to do something with that energy or else it just goes away. So – during the day, you need to store it up, and at night, you need to even it out and draw right. on the battery. So then there's the materials challenge because this uh, these tiles use uh, glass in a novel way. It's got to be tempered, self-cleaning, and capable of transmitting light to the PV below. And it's also got to be uh, strong enough so that trucks can run over it. Right, you know? and it's also got to have enough traction on it. Yeah. You know, the basic problem is to make something that doesn't stay dirty – Makes it slippery. That's right. And so dirt is a problem. All, but, you know, they, they have all these solutions to things like, you know, um, 
when uh, we'll have a heater inside, so when the snows, you know, it'll just melt. The there snow. goes more power. Yeah, there goes more power. Not only that, but what if you have four feet of snow? Are you going to melt all that snow, or you, you know, there's there's problems there. All right, so then th- <laughs> this is great, and I'll, let me quote from the Scientific American author, which is awesome. Finally, there's the problem that these 50 United States barely maintain asphalt roads, crumbling highways, and unsafe overpasses and bridges as it is. U.S. roads are essentially run to failure. In other words, as poorly maintained as possible. So how will any city, state, or federal government pay any amount more to put in a solar road rather than paving with asphalt? It's not just that the panel is more expensive. It's the additional expense of maintenance, replacing the inevitable defects and generally tending, a technological jumble subjected to the brutal pounding of daily traffic, weather, and among other stresses. But their answer is, well, it'll generate so much electricity and we will save money because we won't need plows and we won't need this and we won't need that. Well, it's just the math doesn't actually add up. And you the know, solar doesn't power doesn't generate enough power. Right. And that's it. So, uh, you know, it's just like anything, folks. If you're really interested in doing research into this and you want to change the world, you got to f- solve these hard, hard, hard problems. Yeah. And one would argue even insurmountable problems. Like- yeah. There, there is not, even if you collected 100% of the solar power all of the time, which, and you were in the optimal power availability, go back to this, the, the, uh, space satellite ones, if you want to talk about optimal power availability. Right. And it was always clean. You still can't actually make net power gains. Yeah. Like, it's just not enough power. Right. So, uh, and we have talked, um, not on the show, but offline, you know, wherever we get together and talk, Richard and I, about, the uh ways that novel ways that electricity from the sun and other immediate dc power generating things and ac for that matter can store electricity because storage is a problem you know batteries just can't scale that big with the kind of uh storage that we need and we're talking about the desalinization plant in san diego right yep and that desalinization is something that requires electricity, and you can ultimately use solar electricity if you want to do the hydrolysis or hi- electrolysis or what is it? It's usually reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis, right? It's a yeah. Okay, so it requires electricity to get clean water, um, and that water is actually a really good storage mechanism for power because it takes power to clean water, and so when you have extra power by cleaning water and creating water. You're saving the power that would have been required to clean, create, gather, whatever that water in the first place. Right. It's kind of neat. Desalinization is an interesting talking about. Might might have to make a whole show around it just because there's so much there. But yeah, you know, the list of geek out ideas is getting long. <laughs> yeah, they go on and on. <laughs> Months, <laughs> years of geek outs. Yeah. So anyway, that was. I thought that was an interesting article, and um, not just the uh, you know rainbows and unicorns version of uh of what is a very interesting problem and an interesting and novel approach to it yeah all right who's talking to us richard grabbed a comment off of show 998 the one we did uh the geek out on nuclear weapons which by the way solicited a tremendous number of comments which uh-huh. i you know i've read them all just so you know some of them have really moved me too because that was uh, arguably my most difficult show uh this is a fun comment, though, because uh, Rex Cardin says, Your thorough research paid off. Excellent execution and solid facts. I even learned some things about particle physics in the process. And you really painted a scary picture of the 55 megaton weapon. That was the Sarbamba that yeah. vibrated the whole Earth. Right. 
One of the things that scared me is that there's still one step above nuclear when it comes to power. The step from chemical to, to, which is like dynamite to nuclear was so large because electron binding energies converting energy into chemical reactions is much smaller than nuclear binding energies, core binding energies. But we could still talk about the binding energy and not just nucleon energy itself. If you can convert the whole nucleon mass into pure energy ver- via antimatter annihilation, the results would be terrifying. Oh boy. I just hope that there has not been a government entity who has figured out how to store large amounts of antiprotons or even positrons. Yikes. Yeah, well, uh, what does CERN have in terms of antimatter? They have a very little bit, don't they? They have the largest antimatter factory in the world. But it's still only a little bit, right? It is. Yeah, well, they use individual positrons in the LHR. I've been putting together LHR notes uh, because they're about to restart and do a bunch of new research and work on supersymmetry and so forth. Hmm. Okay. It's really, really hard and energy inefficient to make antimatter. Okay. And we're talking about just individual antiprotons. I mean, that's all they're making. Yeah. And it, it seems like the same old story. You know, more goes into creating it than comes out. Yeah, by a long way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to actually even make a visible amount of matter would be unprecedented but the good news is we have enough oil to last for another thousand years something like that who knows um (laughs) not that that's good news and i and i bring up this particular comment too because believe it or not we will be talking a little bit about nuclear weapons when we do moore's law all right well we should do that absolutely rex thank you so much for your comment a dot at rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a dot at rocks mug write a comment on the website at dot at rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for android windows phone 7 and 8 ios and windows 8 Okay, Moore's Law. Now, I looked up Moore's Law on that super-duper reliable source of truth, which is Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tongue firmly planted in cheek. And here's what they say, and apparently it's unchallenged, so maybe it has something to do. Maybe it's true. Right. Tell me if this is true. Moore's Law is the observation that over the history of computing hardware, the number of transistors in a dense integrated circuit – has doubled approximately every two years. Is that accurate? Basically accurate. Basically, but... Yeah, and it's varied. Sometimes it's been a year, sometimes it's been 18 months, sometimes it's been 24 months. But this idea of transistors in an integrated circuit... Yes. ...is what gets me, because transistors per circuit has hit a limit, hasn't it? Not yet. But circuits per die... Hasn't no circuits per in- transistor per inch is still going up. I mean that that's a big part of it. Well, that's not what it says. Transistors in an integrated circuit, yes, in a single circuit. Yeah, that continue that number continues to go up. Okay. Yeah. Um, the funny part, of course, is that Moore never called it Moore's law. Yeah. Right. And it, and one of the reasons I'm doing this show now is April 2015 is the 50th anniversary of Moore actually writing the original paper. Hmm. That would be like 10 years later called Moore's Law. And how accurate was he? Disturbingly so. But one would argue only because they chose to make it true. Hmm. So Moore's Law isn't free. It's not like, hey, it's been 24 months. Double. Right. Right? It doesn't actually work that way. There's a lot of people, many of them who used to work for Gordon Moore, who have been making it true for 50 years. Okay. So if you want to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, what are we actually doing here? Because I want to, if there's any one thing I want to get across in terms of Moore's Law, it's that it is hard work to make this true. 
Yeah. And in, and the, the success of it has varied over time. There are some limits and there are some issues around this whole process that we could argue one way or the other is good or bad. One of the discussions in doing this research that I really enjoyed was a philosophical debate that said that Moore's law has created a massive amount of unhappiness. Really? Because without this whole process of making integrated circuits has ushered in the computing age, which has made so many things so much better. But it's also created a sense of expectation of constant improvement at accelerating rates hmm. that people's expectations have gotten so vast and so unreasonable that uh, you can't be happy. I can be happy. I, me too, but we're, we're odd ducks and I hope everybody's listening is an odd duck too. But if you really want to get your handle on how hard it is to have Moore's law keep happening, you got to kind of start back at the transistor. I mean, all of this happened, this entire thing. It's only been 50 years since he wrote the document, mm. but the point that in which he wrote it, it was only 20 years since the first transistor had even been made. Huh. And the chain is so short. You know, the guys who made the first transistors, which was literally during World War II, that Shockley, Bardeen, and, and, and Bratton, who got the Nobel Prize in 56. William Shockley is the guy who sort of set up in the Silicon Valley first as Shockley Semiconductor. And one of the things he was working on, getting back to nuclear weapons, was building smaller navigation systems for missiles. It all comes back to the military, doesn't well, it? Well, the military has a lot of money because they trade in fear. Yeah. And so, and Shockley apparently was not a pleasant man to work for. So he created Shockley Semiconductor 56 in the Silicon Valley, which was not called that then, but you know, and he had his first eight employees were PhD graduates. And one of them was Gordon Moore. Another one was Robert Noyce, the two founders of Intel. And they, those eight lasted one year with Shockley before they quit. Wow. Cause apparently he was that unpleasant to work with. But they all went over to another company, a guy named Sherman Fairchild. Fairchild. Fairchild Semiconductor. Hired them all. And also in the Silicon Valley. And they, uh, Fairchild was like the first incubator. He started, he was very much interested in building new businesses. And Intel was one of those incubated companies in 1968. Now, if you do the math, you realize... Moore was working for Fairchild when he wrote Moore's Law. Well, they didn't even call it then. He was a director of R&D, and he did this anticipation that this is what was going to happen. Hmm. And in, the funny part was he wrote in 65. In 75, he was talking about – in 65, he was saying, by 1975, 10 years from now, we might even be able to put 65,000 transistors <laughs> on a single semiconductor. Oh, boy. Because that's <laughs> the funny part about Moore's Law is that you got this doubling effect that's insane. They, when you start coming over larger and larger periods of time. Yeah. So to make an integrated circuit, I mean, you're basically making transistors, right? And that means silicon. Yeah. So you need super pure silicon and then you dope it. This is because transistors need, you know, this is what semiconductors are all about. In a semiconductor, we have these three layers. You have one layer that has an electrical potential on it. Another, uh, the uh, a layer in between that is the gate. And then you have the last layer, the outer layer, which is the drain where the uh, potential is supposed to go. Okay. And the gate can have a voltage applied to it, and then it'll flow through. Right? In specific spots. And those spots have, or those traces or whatever, gotten really small. Well, I mean, it started out, we were making individual transistors, right? All, typically out of 
out of uh, germanium and so forth. But then we they switched over to silicon pretty quickly because it was plentiful and it was easy to purify. Yeah. Because you need a perfect lattice, and then you dope it. And just tell us briefly where silicon comes from. It is a kind of glass, is it? Well, it's sand. Yeah. Right. We're talking about silicon dioxide, which is it's sand. It is super plentiful. It's everywhere. There's even lots on the moon. Okay. So uh, the main thing here is that you have to melt this silicon down from quartz sand, and then you cool it very carefully to create massive monocrystals. Okay. And those monocrystals are perfect crystalline lattices. Okay. In the old days, they would then, in that process of doing that, they would make different kinds. They'd make N-type and P-type. Mm-hmm. And then type, they'd add a little bit of arsenic, P-type, they'd add a little bit of boron. Then you layer those things together because they have different electrical potentials. Okay. But things have gotten a lot more complex since then. Okay. So, but remember that every atom sort of counts. You're making perfect crystalline lattices. Yeah. And you are putting very specific amounts of doping into it. So the cleanest rooms in the world anywhere are the rooms that they make uh, integrated circuits in. Cleaner right. than any any surgery. Right. Cleaner than uh, than any space manufacturing room or place where they make satellites. It's way harder to get this because any impurity basically leads to a failure, especially when the size starts getting so small. Right. And we're back down to talking about nanometers again, right? And just to remind people what we mean when we say a nanometer. So uh, I'm going to use the time example again. We've said this before. A million seconds mm -hmm. is about 11 days. Okay. Right? A billion seconds, 35 years. All right. Right? So a nanometer is a billionth of a meter, right? <laughs> Roughly three feet. So a nanometer is to a meter what a second is to 35 years. That is putting it into perspective, Mr. Campbell. Right. We are going to work in nanometers. We are talking about very, very small measurements. Really small. Now, now we we, not, we weren't always in nanometers, right? Like we, we, the the earlier circuits, the stuff that we know well, micrometers. Um, yeah, they they were they were yeah in micrometers. So I mean, if you go back to the the IBM PC, the original one with the eighty eighty eight and the eighty eighty six in it. Yep. Those are 1,500 nanometers or 1 1.5 uh, micrometers across, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, e and even bigger. So, the the 286, remember the 286? Oh, yeah. Loved that's it. One, Loved my that's, 286. That's 1.5 micrometer yeah. size, right? Yeah. We only start hitting nanometers when we get, you know, below one micrometer, and that's like the 486, where the first nanometer scale chips. Yeah, now the and the Pentium came after that. Pentium came after that, and the nanometers just keep going down and down yeah. and down. You know, once once you get into that chain, it never stops. Right? But it was like, the Pentium that sort of pushed the limits of what is it? The number of transistors in one chip, right? No, it, well, the for a long time, as we were shrinking down these die sizes, the side effect was processors went faster and faster and faster. And hotter and hotter and hotter. Well, not necessarily hotter, right? This is sort of a battle. If you go smaller, you can run cooler, right? Okay. But, uh, and I, I the, and part of this is just conjecture on my part. One of the problems you have when the IBM PC style of machine started to dominate in the middle late 80s mm -hmm. 
was that there was nothing not that different. They were all more or less the same, right? Yeah. They were all beige boxes. Yep. And so how did the marketing folks differentiate their machines? They talked about stats, how many megahertz, mm-hmm. how many gigabytes, you know, those were the things that they pushed. My, you know, it's no different than a car, right? I have more horsepower, so my car must be better. Right. And so the driving force for marketing in PCs through the 90s and the 2000s was CPU speed, right? Because faster must be better. In fact, you saw point blank companies counting on, like Microsoft counting on, by the time we ship this software two years or three years from now, computers will be twice as fast. So we don't have to worry about making it fast on this hardware. It'll be fast enough on the next hardware. Right. I do remember that. Yeah, that attitude. And that may be actually a weakness. We start looking beyond Moore's Law that this is a problem, too, because it just discourages efficiency when you have this reward of constant performance improvements all of the time. So let's talk about the Pentium 4, because that, to me, was the turning point in PCs where they stopped making, where they stopped cranking up the megahertz of a particular chip and because they were just frying computers and my, one of my laptops got fried if listeners remember that oh sure yeah and it basically would you know explode capacitors and swell them and melt stuff it wasn't good so that pentium 4 is in the 99 so one of the things you need to understand about intel uh and it's if we're going to talk about microprocessors we're going to talk about intel you know i'll mention a couple others along the way but intel kind of dominates in the space intel operates on this interesting model called TikTok. And TikTok means they come up with a new density level, right? A new size of individual gates or switches or transistors, however you want to term it. That's the tick. And they'll use a pretty standard design from the previous processor for on that tick. So they only, they only change one thing at a time, change the manufacturing process or change the design. Right? Yeah. So on the tick, they'll change the manufacturing process, go to a denser format. On the talk, they'll innovate on that. So you'll always see sort of two distinctive versions in a given scale. So when you talk about the Pentium 4, right? That's in the, you know, 2000, 2001 timeframe. Right. That was 130 nanometer scale. And that, you know, what's interesting about that time was that was sort of the fastest processors. That's when we started tipping against four gigahertz. But we also had terrible heat problems, as you described. Yeah, you know, yeah. Those were very hot chips. And uh, and then they went to the tick of the 90 nanometer scale in like the 2004 time frame. And, uh, lar- and, and that helped to alleviate some of the heat. Now... There's a whole other sub-story here, and maybe I won't get into it in too much detail, that Intel themselves, you know, like the TikTok process meant that there was a new scale every two years, right? In 95, it was 350. In 97, it was 250. In 99, it was 180. In in 2001, it was 130. Okay. Right? In 2003, they missed the tick. Really? Yeah. 90 nanometer came out in 2004. Oh. So that time span, and I remember it very as, as very much a hardware guy, that time span was a time when Intel chased a bad route. 
They went after, they were after the four gigahertz Pentium and they were using Ram Bus's serial Ram design. Oh, I remember Ram Bus. Yeah, remember that Ram Bus. Ram and they Bus turned exploded. out to be frauds. Right. So Ram Bus was something that got more RAM out of the same chips or more storage or something, wasn't it? It was a completely different way of storing RAM. Yeah. They said they had a technique for, for, for handling RAM called serial RAM that was going to be as fast as the processor. Yeah. Because normally RAM lags behind the processor in speed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there was the DDR RAM designs that were sticking with the same sort of model of multipliers. And then you had, so that they were running, um, you know, the funny thing when we talk about DDR multipliers is they're actually the number of times slower than your CPU. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that, and that's one of the reasons they started putting RAM right into the CPU. Your L1, L2, L3 caches were about faster RAM available to the CPU for places to write to before going out to the external RAM, which is slower. Okay. So Rambus made this promise that they had a RAM design that could go as fast as the processor. And it just simply wasn't true. You know, there's a lot more to the story, and we could almost do a whole geek out around this particular disaster. <laughs> but it really, this is also the time, if you recall, when AMD started making chips as powerful and as fast as Intel's chips. Right. And even you know, a little cheaper, too. And always cheaper. Yeah. That was always their thing. They were cheaper. And it's also the time, like, and, and, as much as I can say that Intel fell off the rails here, AMD put the scared Intel, which was kind of good, but AMD also solved the 64 bit problem. Like a lot, as much as we talk about 2000, 2001, exactly way you describe it. Computers were super hot. Mm-hmm. They were expensive. They were unreliable. We had all these problems. Mm-hmm. It's also when innovation really happened. The 64-bit solution came along. Dave Cutler wrote this great paper called Windows on Windows, which mm-hmm. basically said, here's how you make 32-bit stuff run in 64-bit. And so 64-bit won't be a big deal. Right. Because remember, at the same time, Intel was making a totally new chip called Itanium. I do remember. Yes. Yeah. That nobody bought. Yep. Ended up calling it Itanic. <laughs> Itanic, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, and eventually <laughs> they ditched it, you know, and it's a really interesting point to say the x86 chipset design has been a limiting factor in what PCs can do for a long time. Sure. And Moore's Law, in some ways, has just buried that problem because it's so fast. Who cares? Right. We keep going faster and faster and faster and faster. So, uh, but since that scare, in the 2002, 2003 timeframe, TikTok has been stone cold reliable. 20, 2004, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014. And they seem to be on track for 2016, although things are getting hard. Very, very hard. Okay. So let's talk about what it actually takes to manufacture a chip. Yeah. Okay. So I make these monocrystals of silicon, super clean environments. And I make them into big wafers of silicon, right? And and the size sort of matters. They these days the the fabs that use two hundred millimeter uh, wafers, they'll have multiple chips on them. Of course, there are three hundred and four hundred millimeters. They get when they get bigger, uh, they're harder to work with, but they are more effective for making chips. Okay. So uh, there's an there's an incentive to go bigger, but you have to go slowly. And I also want to point out, you may look at this and go, "Wow, this is such a scam by Intel." that they only step up a little bit each time, and two years later, they're going to make a new one. They really need... There's really a case for why they do things in the order they do them in. There's a, so much experimentation. There's, it's not like you turn a knob and go from 90 nanometers to 65 nanometers. Right. Like it's just not like that. Sure. They literally have to invent new stuff each time, and they're trying to invent the fewest number of things at once so that they can stay 
on the TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's it's very it's, hard. Like you said when we started, it's work. It's it is not- hard work. It doesn't come for free. Right. So you make a you make a wafer 300 millimeters across. You then coat it in a photosensitive resistant film. All right. So the way you actually make the circuits themselves, they draw these circuits out on huge sheets of acetate film. Okay. In a massive scale, much bigger, so that they can actually see what they're doing. Remember, we're talking about stuff that's a hundred times thinner than a than a human hair. Right. So it's very hard. You can't see that. You know, you can't barely see it in a microscope. There's some of the stuff they're making these days in the lab where you need an electron tunneling microscope to even see it, much less actually use it. So they make these masks, and there's several layers because you have multiple layers of uh, silicon. You have multiple layers of masks, and they will take a laser. And shine it through the mask, then through a lens to focus it down to the right size. And the light alters the photosensitive resist. It makes the part that is exposed to light harden so that it can't be removed. Huh. Right? Okay. The parts that are unexposed that were covered by the mask, you now can pour a chemical across it, and it will etch that away and etch into the wafer itself. Wow. Right? That and makes you do sense. this multiple times to cut into different layers. So it's a very precise process. And it, so the frequency of light matters as you get higher and higher into the, uh, the density level. And everything has to be incredibly clean. So typically, you'll see pictures of these big round wafers, again, 200, 300, 400 meter, millimeters across. Mm. And they will have many CPUs on them, right? By the way, the process for making RAM, almost exactly the same. And there's really three classes of of chip these days that are manufactured in serious scale using these most advanced technologies. CPUs, RAM, and GPUs. Okay. Although the designs are quite different, in the end, it's all just transistors. Hmm. And so, you know, they use pretty much these same techniques all the way along. Once you've got the different etchings done, there's a series of testing processes to make sure that each one of the CPUs actually function. Mm -hmm. They will then cut them from the wafers, and then they're bounded onto what's called substrate or basically the, the box part of a CPU. Right. There's a hard part. The chip is actually quite small. Yeah. There's a soldering process to connect the pins together. Depending on the CPU you're talking about, when you, know, when you get up into current generation CPUs, you're talking about thousands of connectors. Wow. You know, the, the top tier latest generation stuff like Haswell, 2011 different pins to that CPU. Wow. It's it's very complicated to put all of that together. Yeah. Have you ever um broken a chip trying to put it in Absolutely. to a motherboard? <laughs> I've plenty of some them, of them dude. some of those connectors are just terrible. And then they you, there was a time I don't know if you do it anymore, but you have to like put a goo down in between the fan and yeah, the you CPU. still do that. You still do that. It's been yeah. a while since I've made it. It's one. thermal paste, right? It's to make sure you're conducting the heat away. And you know, yeah. super important in the Pentium era. Chips are getting cooler now, so it's less important, but you still do it. So now that the the the, um, the speed of the chips is slower, but we have more of them on the same die, right? Yeah, and again, I, I think we could probably go back if we, we we could do a whole show just around this alone. Yeah, it's true. But one of the things that happened with that whole incident around SD RAM RAM bus and so forth is that. Intel ultimately abandoned that whole P4 line, went back to a variation on the P3, and went multi-core. Yeah. And that became core two. Okay. So, you know, the, there's, there's more to this, but, uh, you know, 
That's what it means. That, that's, that's how it happened. Well, you know what time it is now? I must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time for me to write a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, get the processor out. Hurry. <laughs> Honest to God, I got nothing. Oh, uh, that's no, what you I always got. Get something, but no. let's call it nothing. Let's call it nothing today. It's actually time to give away a D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Thomas Atwood. Congratulations, Thomas. Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely. Thomas just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. A big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And, uh, you know, uh, we haven't asked each other in a long time. Richard, what would you do today with five grand? Uh, you know, it's been what I've been doing, which is buying the new generation of monitors. Yeah. You know, I got that 34-inch LG, the curved one. It's awesome. You know, I think I might do the same. There's so many great uh, apps and tools and stuff for 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 utilizing these things. And one thing in particular is stuff like Chromecast. Have you seen Chromecast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Chromecast is a little $35 thing from Google that you plug into an HDMI port. And then you essentially connect it to Wi-Fi and whatever's on your iPhone or iPad or even, I think, Android stuff. And I'm not sure if Windows Phone works with it, but... There's a little cast button when you pull up YouTube or Netflix or anything, and you can just throw it up on your screen. And I was thinking about this because there's also apps out there that you can use the regular camera in your iPhone to to put that up in real time. And I just thought, how cool is that? Like, you know, there's how much stuff do we have to do? Before there was this, just to yeah. get that to happen, just to make that happen, just to yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, so you got to camcorder or something like that it's got an hdmi output and you got a big cable but but this is your phone man it's like so you know here in the studio i have this need to uh to visualize who's in other rooms for the for the and and so i've got a project in in my back pocket where i'm going to put a big screen on the wall that's facing the main studio right so you know where i sit and then there's a big screen above me well this is off to the left so that people, you know, playing the instruments, the drummer, the piano player, all the guitar players or whatever who's out recording, they can see on that screen, you know, people that are in the sort in the booths and across the hall, and they can all communicate with each other. So I'm definitely with you, man. The the monitors and the the remote cameras and all that kind of stuff, man, I could go to town on that. Well, and it just sort of speaks to we've hit a, I think we've hit a new generation now of monitors that are noticeably better. Yeah, you keep saying this. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I keep and looking just, at my know, my Dell 30-inch monitors and thinking, I don't know, they're pretty awesome. They're pretty awesome. And admittedly, my 30-inch is one of the original ones from 2006. Yeah, so is mine. 
I believe. So, no, know, no, I think mine was. I think you got yours a little later, and you know, some technology had sort of improved. Yes, two thousand seven. Yeah. Hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get back to it. Okay. I, you know, I could go through the ent- all the generations of processors and talk about what technologies changed to make them possible on the way. Uh, but it take too way too long. I, I want to just pull some highlights out and really talk about sort of current processors. Yeah, sure. So, in two thousand eight and twenty ten, so that's the forty five nanometer technology called Penryn and the thirty two nanometer technology called Sandy Bridge. Were there were both interesting breakthroughs? Okay, and we sort of talked through the process how we use a laser to go through a mask, to focus down onto the chip, to expose the photoresist etching so that you can do the etching to actually make the chip. So you can make your computer pull up Word. That's it, right? So you can play Candy Crush. So I love that. That's pretty awesome. One of the problems you're running into now is you're getting is the traces are getting so small. You know, when you get into 32 nanometer, 22 nanometer, these, these getting current, the laser light itself isn't narrow enough. So you have to move up the spectrum of laser light. You have to get bluer and bluer and bluer to actually get to small enough weight nanometer wavelengths. Hmm. You know, in the end, light is just part of that electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the size of light is, is sort of between 900 and 200 nanometers, depending on the frequency of light. That's all it is. Okay. So you're in the nanometer range, right? Which is basically the cycle is each cycle of light right? The one waveform is that many nanometers wide. That's really amazing that they can measure it down that far They measure a light wave. We're working in, we're working in sizes so small that the light won't expose the etchant properly huh. because it's too wide. <laughs> so what you're saying is we're coming upon a limit. We're ha- walking, walking towards a limit of light itself. Okay, that we're going to get off the end of the visual spectrum. And once we get there, we have nowhere to go but out. Is that right? Well, there's a whole lot of other things we have to look at. But I want to get to before that. Okay. So one of the things when you get down to the 45 nanometer range is the individual. Remember, the 45 nanometers is the size of the entire gate. That's all of the different layers. Right. Right. An individual silicon dioxide atom or silicon atom by itself is 111 depending on how you measure it, 111 picometers across. Picometers? What's yes. a picometer? A trillionth of a meter. Good Lord, you right. don't say. So think 0.1 nanometers. And how many seconds would that be? Let's make a one second to number of years ratio out of that. If one second is one picometer, then one meter is 35,000 years. One meter. Which is now so, silly yeah. numbers, right? Right. Like you can see 35,000 years is we were still in caves banging rocks together, right? <laughs> like, come on. So, you know, it, all of, of modern civilization and even most ancient, it's that's well into Paleolithic right. time. So we so, can need to say it right, though. I think it's one second to 35,000 years. Years, right. Yeah. It's the equivalent of one picometer to one meter. Gotcha. So. Wow. So Intel's innovation back in 2008 yeah. Right. To manufacture chips then was to switch part of the individual gates from being silicon anymore. They needed a denser material, a material that could hold on to uh, electrons more efficiently than silicon. And they chose an unusual transmetal called hafnium. Hafnium, like H A F or H A L F? H A F N I U M, hafnium. It's actually the Latin word for Copenhagen, which is where it was originally discovered. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Hafnium, if you want a little, little more. The big thing about hafnium is it's what they call a high K dielectric. 
So as you're getting these layers so thin to be able to make these smaller and smaller gates, they start to leak electrons. They can't hold on to them well enough. And so this gate will switch when it's not supposed to. That's what leakage is. Hmm. So th- imagine a periodic table. It's in a very specific order, right? There are stacks that have common behavior. So hydrogen is stacked on top of lithium, is stacked on top of sodium. They're all flammable metals, right? Yeah. So there's a stack of transmetals, titanium, zirconium, and hafnium, all stack on top of each other, progressively heavier, and have similar behaviors in many respects. They're all considered the same kind of transmetal. And most people know what titanium is. I mean, that's that lightweight metal they sometimes make watches out of and various things. Otherwise, inert. the SR-71 is made of, of titanium. Mm-hmm. Zirconium is known – I bet it's one of the reasons I mentioned uh, the nuke stuff because they use zirconium to coat nuclear rods. When you're, when you're building a light water reactor, you clad the fuel in zirconium. It's very tough, even tougher than titanium. It also has a very low interaction with uh, neutrons, which is good for zirconium. Yeah. Um, you can make diamond-like stuff out of it. Hafnium is the heavier cousin of zirconium. So hafnium has a high neutron capture cross-section, uh, which has an interesting byproduct that it's good for gooing what's called induced gamma emissions. So if you wanted to build a pure fusion bomb, because as you've learned in our uh, nuclear weapons show, in order to make a fusion bomb, you have to fire a fission bomb, which is one of the reasons it makes it so radioactive. Mm. You need some kind of high-powered gamma emission, and you can actually do that with hafnium. So people don't like hafnium. It's kind of bad. So it could be bad. It could be really it could, bad. It could be treated badly. Yeah. And hafnium is around. It's, it's plentiful because of zirconium, because of the process of making nuclear fuel rods. Uh, they needed the zirconium to protect the fuel rod, and it's usually found in, a, in a, uh, a mineral with hafnium in it, and they've learned to separate the two very clearly. So hafnium was relatively inexpensive, and it has this great ability to hold on to electrons in small size. So in both Penryn and Sandy Bridge, they introduced this idea of using hafnium gates wow. or high-K gates. And here I thought zirconium was only for fake diamonds. There you go. Well, <laughs> it's more than that. But, and again, I want to get to this idea that they had to introduce a completely new material. That's, that's crazy work. I mean, that's not just pushing a button there or, you know, doing some more math. That's inventing stuff. They had to invent stuff from scratch and a a lot of different IBMs, uh, IBM Machishita. There's a lot of companies that work hard on developing new semiconductors. In some ways, it's done very publicly. You know, they don't hide any of this. They license to each other and so forth, and and they just stay ahead of each other by by. It's one thing to know that you can use hafnium. It's another thing to manufacture it at scale, mm. and that's the biggest challenge here. As we get into the more and more advanced technologies, is can you actually manufacture this efficiently? Can you? Uh, yes or no, right? Like that is the problem, right? This one they were able to figure out how to use hafnium to be successful with, but how do you go smaller still? So in 2012. The goal is 22 nanometers, right? And that's one of the nice ways to think about this. Is this is not so much Moore's law as it is Moore's goal. Yeah. We want to go from f- from the 32 nanometer Sandy Bridge design from 2010 down to 22 nanometers, which we'd eventually call Ivy Bridge. Okay. And now they're so small that even hafnium's going to leak. Huh. So, did they change the material? No. They changed the shape. So, shapes. so far, I've been describing just simple layers, one on top of each other. Yeah. Right? That you etch through. Now, in order to make this 
in order to make 22 nanometer work, they came up with a completely new transistor design called the 3D Trigate Transistor. So the old ones were called planar transistors. They were simple planes. This one now actually has the hafnium part sticking up in little rods into the upper substrate so that there's more surface area on the drain. It's a huh. different shape. Wow. You have to etch it a completely different way. I can't imagine who thought of that, you know, just like. And then figured out how to make a billion of them yeah, I, in a square centimeter. Jeez, that's just unbelievable. Right? That's the thing you got to get your head around. When they were making the 45 nanometer processors, a quad core processor was 820 million transistors. That takes some real imagination to come up with a solution like that. And then it? test it and then figure out how to scale it. Yeah. Right? So Ivy Bridge was the tick of 22 nanometer. And we've all had Ivy Bridge machines. I mean, they're, they're relatively current. That's 2012 technology, yeah. right? Yeah. Then in 2013, we had Haswell. Remember Haswell? Sure. So Haswell is the talk. So it's, they're changing the chip design, but they're not really changing. They're still working in 22 nanometer, although they do improve this uh 3d gate design they now use multiple fins so uh -huh. they, now they get the etching so tight that in 22 nanometers instead of having one fin sticking up they have three so they can actually make it more efficient and haswell gets a refresh in 2014 that's only last year at that point a haswell processor a dual core is 960 million transistors it, it struck me just how many transistors we have in our lives now. I was, I, I went digging around. I found this is hilarious quote. You'll, you'll love this. In 2002, a guy named Jim Turley did the math and figured out that there were 60 million transistors made for every person on the planet. Whoa. And by 2010, it would be a billion per person. Huh. Uh, I found a Forbes article that where a group of guys actually tried to figure out how many transistors have been made in history up until about 2014. The number of transistors, two, by their estimate, 2.9 sextillion. Good Lord. A sextillion, if you're wondering, is one followed by 21 zeros. Wow. That's a lot of transistors. Now, I'm, I'm looking on Newegg right now, and I just yep. looked for Intel desktop processors sorted by price. And the right. top three, the first one is a Haswell 8-core 3 gigahertz LGA right. i7. At and that's at a thousand twenty nine, right? And that's a that's a an a, an eight core, eight core. So that's probably pushing four billion transistors in that chip. Good lord! Now that's twenty two nanometer, right? So that's the the tick and the talk over twenty twelve till twenty fourteen. And actually, Haswell had problems. It took them a while. They actually did a, a refresh on it in twenty fourteen, which is really when they were supposed to be ticking on the fourteen nanometer. Mm. So. As much as Intel has driven this process, they are struggling too. And the, and the schedule is starting to slip. We're supposed to be every two years. So the 14 nan, there are 14 nanometer chips shipping today. Okay. The, te the Intel technology is called Broadwell. They still use the same trigate design. Only now what's happened is they've got two fins, but they've made them about twice as high as the old ones. Hmm. Think about the difficulty in that. Yeah. That are now stretching further through the layers to increase the surface area between the gate and the source mm. to be able to, to actually have this thing work. So they're closer, two fins, taller, closer together to get down to 14 nanometers. 
By the way, Intel not the only one doing this. Samsung. You ever wondered why Samsung is so fast with their phones? Yeah. They manufacture their own processors. Huh. So Samsung, uh, the Samsung S6, right? That's a phone that came out late last year. Yeah. Uses their own Exynos uh, system on a chip processor, which is based on the ARM design, which is sort of an open design. And, uh, but it uses the same Trigate concept. So, and the Broadwells are just starting to ship, right? It's really been in early 2015 that we're starting to get those. By the way, a dual core Broadwell design, 1.3 billion transistors. It's a lot, but it's not over, right? The talk on 14 nanometer is a design called Skylake. And we're now getting into the future. Skylake, as of this recording, hasn't shipped, right? It has a defined name and they are working on it. They're getting, this is, these are designs that are getting close to the limit of visible light. In the 14 nanometer, we're now using lasers that are in what they call the extreme ultraviolet range. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause they, what's the frequency above extreme ultraviolet? It's x-rays. Okay. And x-rays don't work through the same kinds of lenses. You can't use optical lenses on, uh, so, Richard, what happens when we come to this brick wall? What's the end? Yeah, what's the end? Well, let's figure out what the end actually is. So, Skylake hasn't shipped yet, but there's clearly a design they can use. Uh, uh, extreme ultraviolet works to around 13.5 nanometers. So, the 14 nanometer stuff is fine. There's already specs for a 10 nanometer chip. The Intel model is called Canon Lake. Uh, Samsung actually announced this year that they've built a prototype 10 nanometer Exios processor, uh, SOC. Mm-hmm. How'd they do it? Yeah, how'd they do it? Because light-based lithography doesn't work anymore. <laughs> They're using, so what we, the problem here is you've got this masking process followed by uh, the lensing process, and we can't use optics for that, right? We can't use optical lenses to uh, to aim x-rays. So what they've done is they've eliminated all of that, and they're using electrons directly. They've made super precise electron beams okay, to actually do the etching process onto the onto the chip. And in some respects, this has big advantages. I mean, as they get rid of the screening and so forth, now they're actually building the masks purely electronically, right? They only exist inside the machine. They can use multiple beams simultaneously to do the etching more rapidly. So they think they can make 10 nanometer work. And obviously they've built sample quantities. The question is, can they get it to scale? Yeah. Right. Can they actually build enough of them to be profitable in the, in the size that's necessary? And that's also talking about 450, uh, a millimeter wafers, which gets about two and a half times more process than 300 wafers, and this totally different model of lithography. Okay. Wow. So we have a, and now we're getting into trade secret stuff, right? It gets really hard to read Intel papers about stuff they haven't shipped yet, but they're not done. So okay. 10 nanometer still think they can use more or less the same chip designs, but they'll use a different, uh, uh, a different etching process entirely, mm-hmm. probably directly with this tunneling electrons, right? Mascus electron beam etching. Next scale down, seven nanometers. Okay, and we can actually do something there? Now, at seven nanometers, silicon atoms are unreliable. 
There's so few atoms now they can't hold on to their electrons reliably. So they'll probably have to change the material. The current front runner in all the pieces I've read is a material called indium gallium arsenide. Now, indium gallium arsenide is actually a bigger atom than silicon, but it hangs on to its electrons way better. So you don't need as many atoms to have a, a stable charge, and it takes less charge to open the gate. It's so effective that theoretically, and, and nobody knows for sure, because again, these are all trade secrets, they might actually move away from that 3D design. They might go back to planner designs, the flat design, with the new material, huh. because they can actually make it work at 7 nanometer scale. Wow. And, and at 7 nanometer scale, you're talking three times denser than what we had with Ivy Bridge and Haswell. Three times denser, right? So you were talking about that eight-core Haswell processor for a thousand bucks, right? That had four billion transistors on it, right? Three times denser. Wow, right? I should be able to put twelve billion transistors in the same space with seven nanometer design. Wow. So then we get to five nanometer. Now. Time horizon, by the way, we're slipping on the time horizon. I've been going on a two-year TikTok, right? Yeah. We, 2008 for 45, 2010 for 32, 2012 for 22. They made all of those. They, they were supposed to be 2014 for, for 14 nanometer, and then it'd be more like 2015. Mm -hmm. 20, the, the 10 nanometer technology they're talking probably samples in 2017. So it's definitely slowing down. They're slipping, right? Seven nanometer proposed for 2018. You know they're not going to make it. No. Right. It'll be 20, it'll be 2019, 2020, five nanometer. Current, originally projected for 2020, probably 2022. Now that's Intel producing processors at scale with the technology. Right. But there have been laboratories making five nanometer components for a few years now because they only have to make a couple of them. They don't have to do it at scale. In fact, what's started to happen now is laboratories have been trying to make the smallest possible transistor they could make. How small can you go? What's insanely small? So, University of Manchester, UK, 2008, made a transistor one nanometer across. Really? Guess what they made it out of? Diamonds. I don't know. Close. Graphene. Graphene. Graphene's back, baby. They made a transistor out of graphene? Yes, one atom thick and 10 atoms wide. Oh, my God. And they built it one atom at a time. That's crazy. And it works? It, the one transistor worked at least once. <laughs> at least once. Right? I mean, it's a research experiment. Is it, you know, what's the smallest possible transistor? You think that's messed up? In 2012, a research team made a working transistor out of a single phosphorus atom. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of those research projects and stuff, yeah. but I mean, how how possible is it that we can do that in the real that world? That we actually manufacture them at scale. Because, I mean, a single atom would be pretty cool as a transistor, but that now you're down to like 200 picometers or 0.2 nanometers per transistor. Yeah. But can you make billions of them? Because we need to make billions of them. Billions. Billions of them. Yeah. But there's a whole other side of this, dude. We're talking about Moore's Law ending being the end of the world. And it's just not true. No, it isn't. Because we can always scale out, right? Well, there's also a question of, you know, we talked about the whole marketing campaign they did in the 90s around and 2000s around faster, 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 faster. That's what sold well. Mm -hmm. 
These days, most people don't even know what the speed of the processor anymore. What's the speed of the processor in your iPhone? Yeah, they don't know. It doesn't matter. It's more than enough, yeah. right? We are already dealing with computing that is fast enough, and we are not innovating in a lot of other areas. So one of the arguments after Moore's Law ends, if you want to go faster, is to change your computing methodology, right? Let's stop doing mechanical electronic switching computing. How about photonic computing? Now that's just crazy talk. Yeah, there are people working on it. Stanford University has a whole lab building photonic computers where they're trying to do – actually, the real push in photonics happened back in in uh, the dot-com boom times with photonic switching because network switches wanted to go so fast. And they spent a lot of money on it. They didn't succeed, but it's, it's sort of an exploration in that area. But how about quantum computing? Yeah. Quantum computing, another way, a totally different approach – to being able to do computing at much higher speeds and higher densities for certain classes of problem. Both those topics shows under themselves without a doubt, maybe more than one. Yeah, we're going to have to definitely continue this conversation. But even if we didn't do that, even if we didn't switch technologies, if we just plateaued, what if we built steady, reliable technology at five nanometers? What would happen? What kind of innovations would you do after that? You'd start changing design. Look, we've been dragging the x86 processor design with us for 30 years. True. And we haven't changed it because we haven't needed to. It's inconvenient to change it without a doubt, right? Because it will break existing stuff. No two ways about right. it. But if you, you could probably emulate x86 in a five nanometer processor with a better design, hmm. right? Same even with ARM. ARM's actually a really old design. And we just haven't bothered to change it because we haven't needed to. Plus, the other thing that's going to start happening is, in general, software runs a long way behind hardware. Hardware needs to stand still, arguably for a decade, before we'd actually talk about it fully utilizing the computing potential yeah. of current technology. There used to be a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but a law that says all software will expand to fit available resources. Yes. <laughs> This is absolutely true. I have whole rooms like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you get the point that not only is we already have evidence that Moore's Law ending is not that big a deal. Look at the changing computing today right. to say, hey, we're going plenty fast. And the changes left to go are still orders of magnitude. Right. But right? they are a little bit science fiction right now. You know, if I tried to explain to you what they were going to have to do to do 45 nanometer processors a few years ago, you would have think it was crazy too. That's true. Right? Well, right. Like the, that's why I said right now. It's a little yeah. science fiction-y right now. Every bit of this is, is crazy complicated and they've done amazing things with it and they're just not done. But yeah, there are other changes to come and it'll go in a different direction. You know, they, the, we may have something emerge and certainly the quantum computing discussion which is the currently still the most popular one on google moderator yep. is one of the solutions to that and speaking of google moderator tell us what you're doing up there so google moderator is this tool that google has decided to take away from us by july to allow everyone to submit and vote on what geek out topics they want i'll provide a link in the show and i am looking for a new home yeah because at the uh, by the end of June, moderator will be shut down. And if some developer out there wants to write us one, why that would be awesome. 
yeah, I'm going to keep looking for a third-party tool, but yeah, we could just code this thing. It's not that complicated. All we want to do is take suggestions from folks and let people vote so that we can get a priority list. Yep. Today, right now, using Google's ranking system, which is kind of wacky, this, by a long way, quantum computing is number one. And we're going to get to it. I'm, I've been working on the notes for a while. Are we going to wait till it's actually a little more viable or we have a lot to talk about yet? There's a lot to talk about already, man. There are six different kinds of quantum computing. There are a couple of companies shipping computers that are calling quantum computers to much debate as to whether that's real or not. Mm. Um, in the Google rankings, they say that the next geek topic is battery technology. Very cool. Although where quantum computing has 105 yes votes and 11 no votes, Battery only has 37 yes votes and two no votes because AI, the next one below it, the state of the art on, on artificial intelligence, has 58 yes votes and six no votes. Man mission from Mars is right there. And then beyond Moore's Law or Moore's Law, the show we've just done, yep. is, was ranked fifth according to this ranking system. And then the whole conversation around the Large Hadron Collider. The other one that's creeped up out of nowhere, which I'm surprised about, is next generation aircraft and engines. Hmm. So those are all good topics, and we will do them as quickly as we can. But I just listed six. That's half a year right there. That's a lot of stuff. Richard, it's always amazing listening to uh, the research that you've done. You, you're doing us all a great service. Thank you, buddy. Do you like it? Love it. Uh, it's always fun stuff. Love it. Now I can impress my friends at cocktail parties. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to hear more of these, by all means, leave us a comment. Let us know you want to do it. Uh, if you have other suggestions, I'll leave a link to the Google Moderator site. It'll be up for a couple of months at least. Uh, we will keep knocking these down as quickly as we can. I uh, hope you get a sense. I really like doing the research. It's yes. a pleasure for me. And it's just an excuse to, for me to finish my thoughts yeah. uh, around this stuff. And that's what we'll be doing. All right. Until, until then, see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a